night. I'm your host, Alex Padilla, and you're listening to Let's Talk About It, the podcast where I pick a topic and then I talk about it. today. Welcome to our first ever episode of Let's Talk About It. I hope that you guys like the theme music. It was produced by my friend Myra Hills, the lead singer of the Calgary-based band Piss Boy. Myra, if you're listening, thanks again for producing my theme music. It really reflects the angry fire in my soul. Now, if you guys want to support Piss Boy, be sure to take a look at their YouTube channel. It's called Piss Boy, spelled P-I-Z-Z-B-O-Y. Piss Boy! And to the listeners who want to support Myra, be sure to check out her personal YouTube channel where she produces her own music. It's called Strange Town. Also, be sure to check out her band camp as well. She just released a song called Fool, for which I took the cover photo. For the band camp, it's Strange Town, spelled S-T-R, the number eight, N-G-E, town. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I personally hate it when introductions to podcasts take forever, so let's just get into it. For our pilot episode, we'll be talking about an issue that's incredibly important to me education and the fact that girls worldwide have reduced access to it simply because of their gender. We can start off with a story that I'm sure you all have heard before, Malala Yousafzai. Malala grew up in Pakistan during the Taliban occupation of the region. Her father, Ziauddin, is a poet, a teacher, and an activist for education, and he was the founder and principal for the school that Malala attended. Around 2008, while the Taliban occupation of the region was becoming more and more present, the BBC was looking for an innovative way to cover the story. They wanted someone to explain the situation of what it was like to live under the oppression of the extremist group and how it affected people's everyday lives. The BBC landed on having a young girl write a semi-diary slash blog about her experience. And originally, the correspondent was supposed to be an older girl named Aisha, but her family pulled her out of the project due to fear of retaliation from the Taliban. And when this happened, ZUD nominated his own daughter, the 11-year-old Malala, to take on the role. Under the pseudonym of Gol Makai, she began to blog anonymously for the BBC about the experience of being a young girl and going to school, while the Taliban was increasing restrictions on how women were allowed to navigate their everyday lives. Some of you may recall that at age 15, while on her way home from school, Malala's bus was invaded by two men asking for her, and once they located her, Malala was shot in the head at point-blank range. Miraculously, the bullet's trajectory didn't go through anything vital, and she recovered. Although she almost lost her life, she didn't let the incident deter her from continuing to champion for women's rights to an education. Now, although my story is not quite as extraordinary as hers, now that I've introduced you to Malala, allow me to also introduce myself and explain why education for young women is so important to me. I was born in Mexico, and for you, the country might make you think of Taco Tuesdays, Cinco de Mayo, Sombreros, and maybe even the Day of the Dead. You might also be aware that much like conflict-torn Pakistan, Mexico is an incredibly violent country. In 2019, Mexico surpassed Syria as the most dangerous country for journalists in the world. And if you Google murder capitals of the world, on the Wikipedia page, the top five cities in order from most to slightly less violent are Tijuana, Juarez, Uruapan, with my city of origin, Irapuato, at number four, closely followed by Obregón. With narco-trafficking having entered the region around the 80s, violence has steadily escalated. If you look at Mexico now versus when I was a little kid, the difference is astronomical. Mexico, over the years, has become a more violent and financially unstable country, 
And my parents saw the signs of things getting even worse. So in the fall of 2006, my family immigrated to Canada, not only to escape this ever-growing danger, but also to give my sister and I a fighting chance in this world. And when I say that, I haven't even begun to address how something as simple as education for girls in my country is affected by violence against women and the specific dangers that the culture of machismo has caused not only in my country of origin, but all of Latin America, creating such a widespread issue that a song that originated in Chile called The Rapist in Your Path or El Violador en Tu Camino has become a feminist anthem and an international trend being performed in protests not only in all of Latin America, but in cities like San Francisco, London, Paris, New York, and even Istanbul. Safety is the one thing Canadians will always take for granted. It's why they always end up getting murdered when they go overseas. But that's not what we're talking about. Let's take it back to education and how it's different here than it is in my homeland. Another key difference in Canadian lives compared to Mexican lives is competition. Canadians have a significant advantage when it comes to population density because it reduces competition. Allow me to elaborate. Canada is the third largest country in the world with a landmass of almost 10 million kilometers squared and a population of almost 38 million people. In comparison, Mexico is the 14th largest country in the world with around 2 million kilometers squared of landmass and a population of 126 million. That's a huge difference. When we break down those numbers, Mexico is 120th the size of Canada with a population three times as big. For every kilometer squared in Canada, there are four people compared to 65 people per kilometer squared in Mexico. That difference in population density is astronomical. So what does this have to do with education? Well, it means that in Mexico, people have to compete for spots in schools. Public schools are available to everyone, which means that elementary is usually not an issue to get into. However, once you start getting into junior high and high school, the competition begins. To enter into the next levels of education, you are mandated to take entrance exams for each school you're attempting to enter. And if you don't perform well, your entire future is in jeopardy. Also, let's not forget the amount of corruption that permeates Mexican society, because I can assure you that the education system has never been above it. Bribery and nepotism play very important roles in who has access to an education and who doesn't. And this is just in urban cities. It doesn't even begin to cover the population of people living in rural areas and or in poverty, which by the way is at least 52 million people, or the disparity in the quality of public versus private education. And this is just my home country of Mexico. It doesn't even begin to address the rest of the world. And listen, my parents were actually very well connected in Mexico, so my sister and I probably wouldn't have had that many issues growing up in the system. However, life is a marathon, not a sprint, and in the long run, a Mexican degree won't get you anywhere unless you stay in Latin America, whereas a Canadian one will get you a job almost anywhere and everywhere in the world. Just ask my mom. She graduated with a degree in veterinary medicine, and when we immigrated to Canada, it wasn't recognized. So it took her four years of working multiple minimum wage jobs at a time, raising two kids, and studying whenever she could to finally be able to practice veterinary medicine here in Canada. So not only do I gain liberty by working towards a degree from a Canadian university, but I can safely transit to and from school by myself without the fear of becoming another number in the statistics of violence against women. But that's a topic for another time. Let's get back to the subject at hand, which is who has access to education. Well, according to the UN, everyone has the right to access. And yes, everyone includes women and girls. In 2011, the UN came out with their Declaration of Human Rights, and I'm Number 26 on that list is a universal right to an education. The preface to this is article number two on that declaration, which dictates that everyone, regardless of sex, gender, religion, color, language, or anything else, is entitled to all the rights listed in the declaration. So let me emphasize that according to the UN, women are humans too and entitled to basic human rights. According to UNICEF, 
there exists 132 million girls in this world without access to an education. There are a series of contributing factors to this, including child marriage, poverty, religious beliefs, gender-based violence, and the fact that schools in rural areas lack hygienic support for girls. And that's just to name a few, because in reality, the reasons are endless. The bottom line is that girls don't have an access to an education. As a raging feminist in an academic environment myself, I'm incredibly aware of how important female voices are, not only within my own program, but within my university as a whole. The reason that I'm focusing on the lack of education available to women and girls specifically is because of the fact that women and girls are pillars of their communities. There's a famous quote by Brigham Young, and it goes, if you educate a man, you educate an individual, but if you educate a woman, you educate a society. So why is this? Well, we can start off by discussing gender norms and how they affect not only women, but the world. Traditionally speaking, women are supposed to be, and I mean this with great distaste for the stereotype, homemakers. In most societies, women have been in charge of raising their families and taking care of their homes as well as working extra jobs to make money in order to complete the two initial tasks. So why is it important to discuss this? It's important because it shows us the reason that why people in developing countries don't or simply can't prioritize a young girl's education. Again, stereotypically speaking, a man's job in society is to make money and provide for his family, which let's be honest, has become a pretty damaging stereotype for men of our day and age, and is a contributing factor for the fact that suicide rates are higher for men than for women. But anyways, what does the stereotype mean for girls in learning? It means that for families that live in poverty, it makes the most sense to prioritize their son's education while they keep their daughters at home to take care of the household. So what's the problem with this formula? Well, aside from the problematic gender norms that enforce a misogynistic system and the fact that it's ineffective at pushing families out of poverty, it means that girls A, don't stand a fighting chance in this world because their only way to escape taking care of their families is to enter marriage and then they just end up taking care of their husband's family as well as the babies they'll go on to have, so the cycle just keeps repeating. And B, if the men in the family die, or become unable to provide or opt out of their duties to their families, everyone is screwed. And the women of the family have to pick up the sack and get a job on top of one they probably already had because a large portion of the world lives in poverty and people don't make real living wages, and that job will most likely put them at risk for violence as well as earn them less money than they need to survive. Here's a direct excerpt from an article that UNICEF posted titled Girls' Education, A Lifeline to Development. Offering girls' education is one sure way of giving them a much greater power of enabling them to make genuine choices over the kinds of lives they wish to this is not a luxury. The Convention on the Rights of the Child and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women establish education as a basic human right. I know that this may come as a shock to you all, but yes, women are human too. I know, mind-blowing. But anyways, UNICEF goes on to say that women might have the chance of a healthier and happier life should be reason enough for promoting girls' education, which let's face it, is just stating the obvious. But because the world hates women, they have to justify it by stating how educated women benefit society. However, there are also important benefits for society as a whole. An educated woman has the skills, information, and self-confidence that she needs to be a better parent, worker, and citizen. An educated woman is, for example, likely to marry at a later age and have fewer children. Cross-country studies show that an extra year of schooling for girls reduces fertility rates by 5 to 10%, and the children of an educated mother are more likely to survive. In India, for example, the infant mortality rate of babies whose mothers have received primary education is half that of children whose mothers are illiterate. An educated woman will also be more productive at work and better paid. Indeed, the dividend for educational investment is often higher for women than men. Studies from a number of countries suggest that an extra year of schooling will increase a woman's future earnings by about 15% compared with 11% for a man. So to summarize the article, education is a basic human right for all, and yes, women are included in the word all. 
and empowering women and educating them benefits society more than the current system of knocking them down and only focusing on bettering boys. Now, when we talk about education for women, it's also important to include access to birth control. One of the most significant factors keeping the world in poverty and girls out of school is a lack of control over reproduction. According to a study conducted in the U.S. titled Benefits of Birth Control in America, it's impossible to measure the exact impact that freely accessible and reliable birth control has had on society since the 70s when birth control was finally decriminalized and made freely available. However, since then, we have seen a steady increase of women not only earning high school diplomas but going on to pursue post-secondary education. Between 1970 and 2012, the average of women aged 25 and above with a high school diploma increased from 55 to 88 percent, and the proportion of women the same age with at least a bachelor's degree increased from 8 to 31 percent. As the study emphasizes, reproductive planning increases the economic status of women by allowing them through their degrees to enter higher paying jobs, which relieves a substantial financial strain on societies. So how does birth control benefit taxpayers? Well, if and when women who have had access to birth control finally decide to have babies, due to the fact that they're more likely to have degrees, they will have entered higher paying jobs creating financial stability for themselves, which means that A, they get to plan and save money for their pregnancies, which means they won't rely on public health programs to pay for abortions, or if they choose to have the baby, they won't rely on the same program to pay for hospital fees, and B, it means that they'll be able to finance their families themselves so they won't rely on welfare programs like food stamps or food banks to be able to feed their families. So, as you can see, birth control and education go hand in hand when it comes to the betterment of society as a whole. I'm a raging feminist, as you all should be, and we should all be working together to break down gender norms and dismantle the patriarchy because these systems not only oppress women, but men as well. There's a great organization that shows why women's issues are men's issues as well, and it's called He for She, which is a UN initiative that, that emphasizes the importance of men using their privilege to champion for women's rights. All right, kids, I know that it's tragic, but our time together has come to an end. I hate to break your hearts, but I must go on to live my own life. This is your beloved host, Alex Padilla, signing off. On the next episode of Let's Talk About It, I sit down with the incredibly accomplished doctor and medical director of Calgary's IUD clinic, Dr. Rupinder Tor. She will be breaking down the different types of birth control, namely long-acting birth control like intrauterine devices, as well as expanding on today's introduction as to why it's so important. Hope that you guys enjoyed the episode and don't forget to tune in next time for another episode of Let's Talk About It.